That was one good thing about Prop 10, uh, was that a lot of folks made public statements. Many, <laughs> many legislators made public statements about uh, what they were going to do for tenants uh, mm-hmm. after the defeat of Prop 10. Mm-hmm. You know, um, let's see it. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing journalist with CalMatters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Thursday, April 18th, I finally remember to say the date. Yes. Um, today on the podcast, what happened to rent control? What about it? Um, there is a suite, a package, a trio, and some more mm. of pro-tenant legislation that will be heard in the Capitol next week. Um, and we will be talking about it. Yeah, so uh, in the context of this sort of uh, multi-year odyssey to see what might uh, occur with uh, adding protections to to tenants, a big week next week, uh, there's certainly a chance that, uh, you know, like in the past, none of it makes it. And who do we have to uh, talk about that with us today? Yeah, two very good guests. Uh, First, uh, Michelle Parasette, who uh, works with Public Advocate, uh, an organization that supports this legislation and is fellow alongside past efforts. And also Assemblyman uh, Rob Bonta of Alameda, Democrat, who uh, is an author of one of the key bills uh, 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 this year. That bill being just cause eviction, which got 16 votes last year in on the assembly floor. And it's not how, a lot. How many are needed to pass? 41. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. But first, the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery, it is... The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story um, of the past two weeks, and you are particularly excited for this avocado. Yeah, so this uh, this was our runner-up for our avocado last episode, uh, and they said, how could you make me a runner-up? We are going to come back with a vengeance, and, uh, and here we are. And this is one of the things, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through without without cracking up. No. Uh, I just said uh, this might be impossible, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. So, context. Um, the city of Hillsborough, <laughs> wealthy community in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. uh, has sued a property owner there because the property owner has turned her house into replicas of the Flintstones mm-hmm. house, uh, replete with the very colorful buildings, statues of dinosaurs, yes. et cetera. Which you can see from the freeway. Yes. Yes, you can. Uh, so Hillsborough sued, claiming this is a public nuisance, didn't get all the permits, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the property owner, um, a woman, uh, 85-year-old woman, uh, Florence Fang, uh, struck back. Uh, she filed suit against Hillsborough, uh, a counterclaim. And uh, we're just going to read some things that happened at this press event announcing the, the, this, uh, this counter suit. Please. And this is, this is from um, uh, Ms. Fang's attorney, Angela Aliotto, who is a former San Francisco supervisor. And I'll start quoting. <clears throat> is it really about a dinosaur that they want a tree in front of? Is it really about a dino, Fred, Wilma, or Betty? Is it really about that? Or is it about treating Ms. Fang differently because she had a dream and because she's Chinese and because this is Hillsboro, that's one part. Yeah, I made it. You did. I did. You did. Yes. Uh, later, uh, Ms. Fang herself spoke at this press conference, uh, describing the reasons why she would build such a house. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I make so many people happy. I make Americans' memories alive. I make this house alive again. Dare to dream. Yes, dare to dream. Dare to make a change. Dare to make a difference. I think this house represents that spirit. I think this house represents the American drive force. This house for me is about America. Yes. And to her to her point, the Flintstones, a bedrock of America. You like that? <laughs> I took your role as making awful puns on the podcast. <laughs> you know, what isn't about America, Matt? I don't. I literally don't know. <laughs> I literally don't know. In, you know, when this story yeah. first came out, yeah. there was a a kind of groundswell of support from people who would drive along the freeway from which you could see. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. saying how it was like a cherished childhood memory that they have was driving. I think it's the 880. Driving yeah. along the 880, they could see the 
the Flintstone house and this it made, you know, their childhoods in the Bay Area worth living. I don't know. Just some whim- more whimsy. Yes. I mean, the highway is not, not the most whimsical place. But yes. you look at uh, the Flintstones and you think. <laughs> what do you think? I, I don't know. Cartoons. That was fun. <laughs> they were fun, the Flintstones, right? I mean, before our time. But, yes. you know, uh, but certainly we watched the reruns. I did. Yeah, I, uh, did, I did too. Yeah. yeah I mean, better than the Jetsons. I, I have a feeling we will continue to to return to the Flintstone house um, at at some point just, during the course of the year. It really does. Yeah. It really does. And I'm happy for you. You got to – this got to be your avocado. I'm so happy. Um, I, ha- I, too, had a dream about the Flintstone house come to fruition. There's no good segue out of the <laughs> Flintstone house. It's really hard to segue out of the Flintstone house. We wanted to talk about a, a few stories that we both did over the past – Couple month, weeks, yeah. That had some parallels in terms of the reporting process um, and what influences a legislator's vote. Um, so there's a lot of things that obviously determine how a legislator votes, right? It's who's in their district, pressure from leadership, influence of special interests, their personal conscience in some ways. But also it is their personal experiences and possibly their financial situation. Yeah, so uh, I spent some time taking a look at uh, the connections with uh, the Senate leader of the state Senate, Tony Atkins, most specifically the businesses, uh, the consultancy run by um, uh, uh, Senator Atkins' spouse, uh, Jennifer Lassar. So Jennifer Lassar uh, has for a long time, including prior to when uh, Senator Atkins took office, ran an affordable housing uh, consulting uh, 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 project. Yes, and this is well yeah. known. Well in known. The she, she's very well been respected. On. Yeah, well respected in the field. This has been reported on before. But uh, I took a closer look at, at, at a couple aspects of this that I think um, or had not been reported in a comprehensive way previously. Uh, one is just the tremendous explosion in uh, uh, Jennifer Lassar's business that has mirrored the, the increasing power of her spouse, uh, Tony Atkins. So, one interesting stat. Uh, according to the most recent uh, financial disclosure forms that the senator um, has released, uh, Jennifer Lassar's firms have uh, 86 clients uh, in, in 2018, and that's an increase of about fourfold since 2013, which is the year prior to Senator Atkins becoming the leader of the Assembly. Mm-hmm. So uh, Senator Atkins was the Speaker of the Assembly prior to her election to the Senate and prior to her, her ascension to Senate leadership last year. So a tremendous amount of increase in the number of cl- clientele for uh, Jennifer Lassar over the past uh, five years. And who are those clients? So a lot of them are public agencies. Um, You have uh, a lot of cities and counties, Los Angeles, uh, a bunch of stuff in San Diego where they're both from. Um, You had uh, the Open Society Foundation, which is the uh, sort of George Soros funded um, uh, uh, foundation that backs a lot of progressive causes. Um, All sorts of predominantly public clients, but also some developers, uh, both for and nonprofit. Um. What was kind of the reaction to the to the story? Yeah, so there's one other aspect I think is uh, of this that that we uh, talked about that hadn't really been reported in in, in earnest, uh, and this will get me to answer your question too. Sure. Uh, where um, so we have mentioned in in, the, in this podcast before the CASA process in the Bay Area. This was an effort run by um, uh, regional government there to help put together a solution, what they call a solution to the region's major housing problems, and it turns out the solution uh, as they put Put it forward was a sweet package of state legislation touching everything from tenant bills to more production, more money, all of these things. Yes, right? it includes Senator Scott Weiner's SB 50. Right, and some of the tenant legislation that we're about to exactly. uh, about to talk about. So uh, they hired a consultant to, to run their meetings, to facilitate their meetings, and that consultant uh, happened to be Jennifer Lassar's firm. Uh, so uh, it was a no bid contract, meaning they didn't solicit other uh, other firms to 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 see what they could do. And the contract was over five hundred thousand dollars for Lassar's firm, and Lassar was the leader on this to help facilitate uh, putting this package together. Yeah, it's it was it's interesting. Yeah, and so that's one of the things you know I, I should say that uh, you know uh, 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 Lassar told me that that you know uh, uh, she was not involved in making recommendations, and the senator told me that she was not involved, not going to be involved in actually writing any of these bills, uh, all of those sorts of things, which you know all seem true, right? Um, but certainly, uh, uh, you know, and we've talked to we talked to good government experts that were in that in in the story when you have um, this sort of close connection between 
between high profile legislation and a leadership role um, and and the financial connection that that, that exists uh, that's involved here, it can raise questions among the public about uh, conflicts of interest. Yes. And, and certainly deserves the level of reporting that you devoted to it. Um, let's talk about that reporting yeah. because it was both me and you were deep, knee deep, yes, deep, yes, uh, mm-hmm. in something called the Form Seven Hundreds, um, which are the statements of economic interest that legislators and constitutional officers, uh, like need the to, governor, mm-hmm. secretary of state, et cetera, yeah, right. need, need to file with the state um, with the purpose of disclosing possible conflicts of interest. What was the ugliest Form Seven Hundred that you found? Do you remember? Boy, I mean, so so these forms are good in that they do give a glimpse. I would say glimpses might be might, might be the appropriate word. Yeah, I think um, that's right. At, at, at what where where legislators, public officials are getting their money, right? Yeah. So you know, for so for instance, uh, you know, I was able to learn uh, from these forms largely who Jennifer Lassar's clients were but not how much she was getting from them. Mm-hmm. And we know in a very broad aggregate, you know, how, how much money in total that the, that 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 these that Jennifer's firms were mm-hmm. were were uh, were getting, right? And that's the same for every legislator because the forms give you broad ranges of the kind of income that they're making in in uh, both from say clients, uh, from you know immediate family members, right? Um, uh, uh, and also from uh, properties that they may own or stocks. Beautiful segue. Yes. Much much better than um, the segue out of the yeah. Flintstone house. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. you are required to disclose if you or your spouse or your children are getting income from a residential property um, or a commercial property, actually. And the question that myself and fellow CalMatter, uh, fellow CalMatters reporter Elizabeth Castillo set out to answer, looking through all these Form 700s for all 120 legislators in California was, okay, how many legislators are landlords? Yeah. So what did you find? So we found that over a quarter of California legislators are getting rental income um, from secondary residential properties. That's so, a lot. Yes. Yeah. So a... a more simplistic way of framing that is uh, over 30 legislators are landlords. It is a lot. So a glib uh, tweet I sent out was that there are more uh, legislators named Jim or Bob that are also landlords than there are Asian American women in the uh, California legislature um, huh. combined. Yeah. Which, a, lot of, a lot of landlords. Yeah, it's a lot of landlords. Well, I think your point is about, about representation, right? Um, yes. And it gets back to personal experience, which, you know, um, again, uh, uh, I don't think anybody um, uh, thinks that people's personal experiences do not influence how they see the world, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And mm-hmm. it, it is tough to report on these types of stories because it is completely fair to raise how your personal financial situation and your... Um, personal experiences, which I think in in this landlord case probably has more to do with how people view the issue, right? The fact that you might have had a bad experience with a tenant, right? It it is hard to report on this because of the the implication, which is, uh, well, all of your legislative actions are determined by your personal financial situation, right? right? Wh- right. Which is which is not what either of us are saying in our reporting. Well, and that's unfair. I mean, that's unfair. It is unfair. Every, I mean, it, you, someone can make the same thing, uh, same argument about you know, where my background and uh, and, of course. and and how I ca- characterize my stories, or really any reporter. And I think certainly, um, I think what what you know what what. What I try to t- t- take into account with that is a bit of humbleness about where I came from uh, and how that does shape my reporting. Yes. Um, and I, I think, you know, that that is a level uh, absent e- evidence of explicit corruption. Right. Yes. Um, that's really the, the what you are hoping that legislators also can take into account when they when they think about um, these sorts of issues. Yes. Uh, yes. So on that note, we, we also tried to figure out how many renters uh, just pure renters, not a homeowner. Um, lots of legislators actually do rent here in Sacramento. Right, right. Um, but typically they have a home in their district or maybe they have a home here in Sacramento and rent in their district. But a huge swath of the state are just renters, aren't homeowners. Right. And a growing swath of the state. Yeah. So uh, there is not comprehensive data on that. Um, it is You can answer it, but it is a huge, huge data task to do so. We could only find one legislator, uh, Todd Gloria, Democrat from San Diego, who was a pure renter, who he used to be a homeowner. He owned a condo. Hmm. Um, But uh, now he is just a renter. 
We also found that uh, the speaker of the assembly, yeah, this um, is an interesting finding, Anthony Rendon, um, collectively with his wife, has four properties from which he gets rental income. He is one of the legislators that the most, right? with the most properties from which he's getting rental income. Yes. I think there's only one other, uh, Christina Garcia from Bell Gardens, who has more. Yeah. So with over a quarter of California legislators as landlords. Mm-hmm. Um, is it such a shock that it's so difficult to pass uh, pro-tenant <laughs> legislation? <laughs> right, 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 right. In in the Capitol. Right. Well, let's 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 set set the table in the scene here, right? Sure. So I think you could, if you want to be um, somewhat short about this, we could start the clock in January 2018, uh, and that's where there was a hearing uh, on a bill that would have repealed. Uh, legislation or a longstanding state law called Costa Hawkins. Costa Hawkins, as longtime listeners of the podcast know, a 1995 state law that limits local government's abilities to implement rent control, uh, predominantly says you can't do it on buildings newer than 1995, uh, can't do it on single-family homes, right? Um, And so uh, there was a bill that would have repealed it entirely, which would have allowed local governments to do whatever they wanted in the rent control space. Uh, That bill did not advance out of its first committee. That was sort of the first battle in the war. Uh, it had a major conflagration uh, in November 2018 with Proposition 10, mm-hmm. the ballot measure that would have done the same thing. That's right. That ballot measure lost uh, by a large amount. Um, and so here we are uh, now this year, a uh, new package of pro tent legislation that is uh, less, uh, uh, let's say, less um, aggressive than simply repealing uh, Costa Hawkins um, and comes with sort of an environment where, uh, on the one hand, you have uh, landlords and realtors saying, well, you know, the public has spoken. Uh, You know, we don't, the public says they don't want this sort of stuff, right? But I think, on the other hand, you do have a governor, uh, at least publicly, uh, new governor Gavin Newsom, being uh, more publicly supportive of some pro-tenant legislation than, say, the previous governor was. While Gavin Newsom did not support Prop 10, he has said, and has said recently, if the legislature passes a, a package of tenant bills, rent stabilization bills, he will sign it. And he has been engaged well, in, in, in some of the negotiations surrounding these pieces of legislation. And not just that. He called for the yes. legislature to send him exactly. those bills. Yes. Um, so uh, we are talking about this now because some of these bills have a very important hearing um, next week, there's an important legislative deadline, which we don't really need to get into the, the weeds of, I don't think. Yeah. Basically, these bills have to pass out of the first committee next week. Exactly. Period. Let's start with the bill that gets at the core of California rent control law, and that would be AB 36, um, a bill from Assemblymember Richard Bloom uh, to reform Costa Hawkins. Right. So uh, we mentioned what Costa Hawkins was. Uh, This bill would not uh, repeal it. Bloom was the author of the bill last year that would have done that. Instead, this bill says, uh, and we gave the timelines earlier, this bill says you could implement rent control if you would like local government on uh, uh, apartments older than 10 years and also allows uh, it to be done on single family homes. That's right. Well, single family homes that are it, it would not allow it to be put on single-family homes right. owned by mom and pop, if by mom and pop landlords. Right. And they define mom and pop as yeah. if you own uh, less than, than three. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's important to include. Yeah. The Apartment Association, the Association of Landlords, those, those changes do not seem to have satisfied them. No. No. Mm-hmm. They oppose this bill. Yes. Well, they oppose all of these bills. Does, does this bill stand a better chance of, of passing than Costa Hawkins repeal? I think this is uh, the package year. of bills that we're going to be talking about the least likely to advance. I, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Apartment Association says that that 10-year um, uh, threshold is not enough time to allow for the financing of new development. Right. Um, which they say will uh, even exacerbate California's housing shortage even more than um, – it, it currently is. Right. And we should we should spend some time because uh, our guests are, are, are certainly pro these bills. We should spend a little bit of time describing some su- the substantive exactly. reasons behind uh, landlord opposition. You just mentioned about the the argument that uh, underlying uh, California's housing problems is a lack of housing supply, doing anything that uh, would potentially restrict that supply in some way. They, they argue that, that this bill would is, uh, they say, a bad idea. Um 
so that's I think the sort of the principal objection um, is uh, is that argument. And instead, they would support that, or they've said they support things like uh, increasing spending uh, on building new low income housing uh, and also um, building more generally. Um, okay, let's move on to another bill that will actually be heard in a different committee. This is AB 1481. This is Assemblymember Rob Bonta, from a Democrat from Alameda, his bill uh, to require landlords to list a reason um, why they would evict someone. Yeah, this is called, uh, the formal name is Just Cause Eviction. Uh, and this bill actually uh, adv- advanced a little bit further uh, than some of the other bills last year, but then met quite a thud uh, on the Assembly floor. Yes. Yeah. As we mentioned, as I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast, it only received 16 votes, um, which is not not that many. Not the only tenant bill to die on the floor last year, which we'll talk about shortly. The let's flesh out some of the arguments against that bill, because we were going to have Bonta later on in the show, who will obviously, you know, describe the merits of it. Yes. Why should a property owner have to list a reason to remove someone from their property. That's what they would say. Um, Right. It's their property. They should be able to say who gets to live on their property. Um, And also, I think there's an argument that uh, 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 sometimes there are cases that are, you know, not criminal, uh, but might be kind of touch and go, and they just don't want someone living there. Uh, And it'd be hard to to be able to to write that in a uh, sort of justify that uh, uh, in a sort of very legalistic way. That's right. Uh, And as a result... um, that's a reason to, to to say no to this kind of legislation. That's right. Landlords would also say, how am I supposed to protect my other tenants? That's right. Um, from what is obviously a nuisance, if this is going to be a very cumbersome legal process for me to remove this obviously problematic tenant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's talk um, about AB 1482. This is Assemblymember David Chu from San Francisco, Democrat from San Francisco, his bill um, that would impose a rent gouging cap on uh, pretty much all California rental properties. All California rental properties. Yeah. yeah. So this is uh, modeled after two things. Um, one, um, a proposal last year uh, that came out of uh, the UC Berkeley's uh, Turner Center for Housing Innovation, uh, presented in the middle of um, rent control negotiations prior to the ballot measure failing, that was uh, listed as a compromise or, or advanced as a compromise uh, that to, to potentially get this off the ballot. What it does, um, and then also um, there was a measure that passed, as I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, passed the legislature in Oregon earlier this year yes. uh, that uh, does a similar thing. Uh, and that would say you, landlord, are only allowed to increase rents by uh, a certain number uh, above inflation. The argument being that we need to insulate people from uh, sort of uh, uh, quick surges or that sort of 20% rent increase that, sort of, that you hear sometimes uh, that uh, some folks view as exploitive. For a long time, this bill did not have a specific percentage. Yes. And that was part of the reason that that was the case is because um, it is reliable rental data is, is hard to come by. Yeah. Um, and so to find the appropriate number is, is not a simple task, well, policy-wise. But, but policy-wise, also politically. And also politically. Yeah. Exactly. You make the number uh, too high. Um, tenant groups don't like it. You make the number uh, too low, and landlord groups like it even less than they would otherwise. Yes. Right. Um, so he has settled. Uh, this is this by the t- maybe by the time this publishes, uh, but certainly by the, before the hearing next week, uh, the number that he's settled on is is a five percent increase would be allowed plus inflation, which is uh, tighter than Oregon, yes. which was seven percent plus inflation, but uh, was the exact number that the Turner, Turner Center proposed last year in its yes. report. I just want to reemphasize the point that this would apply a rent increase cap to properties that have never had any type of rent control legislation applied to them, right? Yes. This this gets around Costa Hawkins um, because it would apply to single family homes. It would apply to condos. It would apply to new, to new developments. Yeah. And I think that's very noteworthy, yeah. mm-hmm. um, both politically and policy-wise. Yeah. Speaking of crappy rental data, <laughs> um, let's get to AB 724, a, a piece of legislation from a new assembly member. This is Buffy Wicks, Democrat from the East Bay. Um, what does this legislation do? So this actually already advanced out of its uh, first committee hearing uh, earlier this month, uh, but in a changed way. The idea is to, uh, as you mentioned, not enough date rental data. This would create a registry of rental properties around the state. Um 
And so originally, the idea was for every rental property, uh, but in its amendments in the committee, now it only applies to pro- uh, 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 buildings where there are 15 or more units. Yes. So a lot different. And you might be thinking, why is rental data so hard to come by? I constantly see reports from you guys saying that the average rent has increased by a thousand percent in some jurisdiction, right? Right. So often the case when you see those types of reports, let's say from Zillow, those are often listings, right? That's key. So an apartment that actually goes on the market, which is likely going to have a higher rent than what it was before it was on the market, right? Yeah. So what you don't have is what people are actually paying now for rent. Right. You can get some of that in census data, but it's big lag. But there's a lag. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the interlocking portions of this the, this bill, too, yes. or these bills, too, because there's a, a, a school of thought that says uh, rent control or uh, rent caps without just cause eviction is doesn't really make any sense, right? If you have a rent cap, uh, but you can evict someone for any reason, then instead of raising the rent 7%, you, you know, you just evict them. And then you can raise the rent to whatever you want for the yes. next for the next tenant. Which is why cities that do have rent control almost always have a just cause right. eviction and, local ordinance. Right. And similarly, if you have just cause without uh, any sort of rent cap, then uh, even if you can't evict someone uh, without giving the reason, if you propose to raise the rent by 30%, um, then it's essentially doing the same thing. Yeah. So aside from these bills, yeah. which were kind of prominently featured in a a press conference, what was that, like a month ago? Ish, month-ish, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, something uh, like that. Yeah. Um, there are a handful of other tenant-related legislation that we're just going to quickly go through that we think people interested in this topic should be aware of. Right. This is in the, in the Senate, and all of these have hearings um, next week as well. Uh, so just very quickly, uh, Senate Bill 18 from Nancy Skinner uh, of uh, Berkeley um, that would uh, provide uh, rental assistance uh, at an unspecified amount uh, for those at risk of homelessness. Uh, Senate Bill 329, Senator Holly, Holly Mitchell from L.A. Uh, this uh, would say that landlords could not discriminate against Section 8 voucher holders. So right now they're allowed to say no if you are a um, a uh, Section 8 recipient. Uh, and then Senate Bill uh, 529 from a new state senator, uh, Maria Elena Durazo, also from L.A. This g- would give tenant groups the right to organize. Tenant bills have failed to come out of the Capitol over the last three years now. Yeah. Can any of these bills get out without being combined with something on the supply side of things that the very influential Landlords Association and developers um, want? I think uh, uh, short answer, no. I I think the longer answer, though— on, maybe, but only if there's engaged. If the governor, if Newsom comes in, if the governor, or and to, to a lesser extent, leadership in the in you know Senator Atkins or Speaker Rendon, uh, come in and say this is happening. Yeah. Right. And most likely, they're only going to say that is if there's a package, right, a package of bills. So, um, yeah. I mean, I think given the performance of these bills on their own, given the fact that they have all the hurdles that have to jump through, uh, I don't think any of them uh, advance very far, may even die next week, unless there's a coordinated effort uh, from someone in a, in a leadership role to try to get them through. One thing we haven't talked about is uh, the proponent of Prop 10, um, uh, Michael Weinstein, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, a nonprofit based out of Los Angeles, spent $25 million-ish uh, promoting Prop 10 um, uh, last year, has come back and said that he uh, is interested and plans to submit language for a potential initiative on rent control that would be different, um, but also a rent control initiative for 2020. And so I think the pressure will continue to be there in one way or another. Um, And I think, uh, you know, supporters of this uh, kind of policy make a good point that as long as um, tenants are struggling, uh, which seems to be the case for the foreseeable future in the state, then there will be some appetite to to try to do these kinds of bills, even if they keep getting uh, defeated. And where does Weinstein um, fall on these bills? So or at least he, some of these bills. Yeah, so I think most prominently when I talked to him, it was about David Chu's bill. He does not support it in its current form. Uh, and so and it went so far as to say that if uh, if something like the Oregon bill uh, passed the legislature, uh, he would run an initiative campaign to overturn it. 
what was his what was his rationalization behind that? So um, one thing that we have not talked about when it comes to Costa Hawkins is provision called vacancy decontrol. Yeah, um, and that uh, that provision says that um, a city cannot require a landlord to keep their uh, property at a um, uh, uh, sort of at a below market rent um, uh, when a tenant moves out. Right. Mm -hmm. And so landlords are allowed because of Costa Hawkins to um, raise the rents to whatever they want if a rent control tenant moves out to him, to Weinstein. That's a that's a that's a a bright line, a red line. And he says without that, then the protections are not strong enough. And that among all of the possible reforms to Costa Hawkins, I would argue, is most anathema to uh, the Landlord Association, at least. That's correct. Okay. Anything else? No. All right, great. Let's, Let's get head to, to the interviews. We're here with Michelle Parasette, who is a policy advocate at Public Advocates. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So tell us what you do um, and how closely you're involved in some of the conversations surrounding uh, tenant issues at the Capitol. Yeah, so uh, I am a policy advocate with Public Advocates, um, and... That means a lot of things. One one of those things is that I work uh, in the Capitol on legislation, and another part of that job is working with communities and base building groups to try and make sure their voices are heard in the Capitol. Um, our role uh, this year uh, with the Keep Families Home package, which is um, a package of three bills that are intended to protect tenants. Uh, we're we're co-sponsors along with Western Center on Law and Poverty, ACE, PICO, Policy Link, and Tech Equity. Um, so our job is to to try and shepherd these bills through the legislature um, and and convince um, reluctant legislators to vote for them. Why is it so hard to get pro-tenant legislation through the Capitol? I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think um, one big reason is the California Apartment Association, the California Association of Realtors, have a big presence there. Um, legislators uh, have strong relationships with those organizations, uh, and and a lot of uh, a lot of legislators. I think it's been a while since they've been a tenant, right? So they're a little bit removed from what that experience is like. Many and are ma- landlords themselves. Many are landlords themselves. Although I'm a landlord myself. Um, and and I think that that doesn't mean that you can't relate to tenants. I, I would hope that it would it would help you. Um, mm-hmm. However, uh, we we have really struggled to move tenant bills in the Capitol. Uh, last year's Costa Hawkins repeal bill uh, didn't make it out of its first committee, although we had hundreds of people in the building excited about this bill. That was quite uh, a day. It yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, I, I have uh, friends who are staff who could hear us on other floors. You know? <laughs> Were you wearing a coordinated T-shirt? With... Uh, I was not. I was in a suit that day. Because oh, um, that's the lobbyist role. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm an advocate. I'm not. <laughs> I'm, not I'm not a lobbyist uh, technically. I don't have to register, uh-huh. but. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of excitement about that bill last year, um, but there was not the will uh, to negotiate around that bill last year. If you recall, um, tenants wanted to hold the line and they wanted full repeal. Uh, and we heard from legislators and from the Apartment Association of Realtors that they wanted to negotiate. They're what, you know, why won't you negotiate with us about these bills? Um, you know, and it and it failed. And then we had Prop 10, uh, which also failed. But one of the outcomes of Prop 10 was this huge network of tenants groups and uh, labor got on board. And so even though uh, that was not a success, uh, there's this infrastructure now to to have bigger fights about tenant issues and housing. Um, In in retrospect, was it a mistake um, on the part of some of these tenant organizations not to be more willing to negotiate? Um, in January of uh, 2018, when when Costa Hawkins legislation, you're smiling <laughs> when you're looking at me right now. When when it was possible that this would go through mm-hmm. the Capitol instead of the ballot box, um, you know, hindsight is 2020. Sometimes, because now we have a, a Costa Hawkins reform bill. Uh, right. AB 36 uh, by Assemblymember Bloom from Santa Monica. Um, and f- all those folks who said, let's negotiate, you know, we're not we're not getting that negotiation from them. We're not hearing from them. 
what would help them support this bill. So I think that that is lip service to say that they want to negotiate uh, because they're not. But they have more leverage now than they did last year because, I mean, the world has changed. They've proved that, you know, six in 10 Californians said no to Prop 10, right? That's a large number. Yeah, but- so, so what, I mean, given that, um, why should they negotiate? Well, um, if you look, uh, they spent $80 million telling really big lies. <laughs> Um, you know, they out. <laughs> frankly, I mean, you know, I, I had a, um, an argument with with one of their um, spokespeople and he was telling folks that it was going to create 700 new rent boards uh, across the state. And it's that's not true. Um, you know, any city right now could create their own rent stabilization initiative Uh whether Prop 10 won or lost, you know, right. so there's just all of this misinformation. And I think um, what the Prop 10 campaign could have done better, uh, one was was have more lead time uh, on the ground to get folks um, educated about what Costa Hawkins is, what it can do, what it can't do, uh, and then have just the, a pile of money to do communication during during the campaign, which uh, they didn't have. Well, $25 million is not a small campaign. That's what the yes side had. So right. that's, that's, that is plenty of money. That's a lot of money to win most campaigns. I certainly yeah. understand the imbalance in the spending, yeah. but it's not like $25 million is not, mm-hmm. not a lot of money. And, and on that note, actually, yeah. so that money, of course, came from Michael Weinstein from the mm-hmm. AIDS Healthcare Foundation, who has put multiple bills, not just uh, multiple bills, multiple right. initiatives, right. not just related to housing on the ballot. Um, but I guess the question for me is where else would that money come from um, unless public advocates has a safe no. somewhere in the back full no. of gold? I'd love to I print don't. money, but I, <laughs> exactly. I can't. I can't. So. so where else would that money come from if it's not going to come from him and the AIDS Healthcare Foundation? So a lot of the big major proposition campaigns on progressive issues in this state are supported by labor. Mm. And if labor is behind... Um, if labor is labor is behind us, I I, I think that's how we get it done. Hmm. You know, I hear that Michael Weinstein is going to submit another proposition, um, eminently, uh, to do this again in 2020. Yes, he's told me this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, for the apartment association and the realtors who probably want to spend their money in 2020 defending Prop 13, defending another Prop 10 maybe isn't also what they want to do. So I think it's. Um, I think they should come to the table and negotiate on these bills and get some tenant protections and maybe stem the tide a little bit of all the extra money they might have to spend next year. Do you support um, potential initiative that he would sponsor, that AIDS Healthcare would sponsor in 20? You know, um, I don't know Michael Weinstein personally. Uh, We've never met. Um, I I would like to have a proposition campaign that was a effort um, between tenants and community groups and faith groups and labor. Um, it's my understanding that Mr. Weinstein works kind of independently. Um, and I think that a proposition like that would best be run um, through a big coalition of, of the most affected folks. So what kinds of negotiations or discussions, given that, as you said, that it... it um uh, the the sort of opponents have taken, a, 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 or my understanding, as you've said as well, a relatively hard line against the legislation that's now being proposed as a key deadline next week for to move some of these bills out of their first mm-hmm. committee. Uh, given the context of last year, given that, you know, talk me talk us through what's happening and what the chances are for these pieces of legislation to advance. So um, we negotiate, and we apply pressure, and we explain. Um, there's going to be a lot of activity this week in district. Uh, there are some of the legislators on that, uh, how, particularly Housing and Community Development Committee, that um, you'd think would be maybe better on this issue than they are. Um, I'm thinking Todd Gloria, for example, who has 69% of his of the folks in his district are renters. Yeah. And that is crazy if he cannot support some kind of tenant protections. You know, he wants to be mayor of San Diego. I'm like, how do you do that when you won't like lift a finger to protect tenants? Hmm. So you don't, I mean, he's the among, if not the, aside from the chairman, Chu, he's among the most left 
members of that committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, even he uh, apparently has qualms about this legislation, let alone this first committee. But how do you even get it? I mean, th- there's a long way to go, even if you advance it out of a committee, right? Right. These are hard. This is a big lift. <laughs> it's a big lift. Any any tenant bill in, in the legislature is a big lift. These yeah. are particularly hard. Yeah. What about the prospect of combining some of these tenant bills with other legislation that may be the apartment association or developers um, would be supportive of um, in, in some type of broader housing package? Yeah, a grand bargain. We would like to get there. Um I don't know if you've talked about the CASA process that happened in, in the, the Bay Area at all. We have, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that was a good model of a bunch of folks getting together who may not normally agree on an issue mm-hmm. and trying to hash out some kind of compromise, you know, where not everyone is going to walk away from the table feeling great, but maybe feeling heard and like your most important uh, issues were addressed. Um, you know, I think that these bills would be perfect in a housing package that, you know, perhaps included some production bills and some preservation bills. In California, in, in, in our legislature, we're very focused on production, and that is essential. It is. But it's going to take 30 years for us to build our way out of this problem. And in the meantime, tenants are suffering. Uh, I'm going to be dead before we build enough housing to house everybody. I am. So uh, what do we do now to keep people from being displaced, to keep people, particularly young people who are already under pressure from huge student loans? You know, they're never going to be able to buy houses if we keep going like this. They're spending all of their money in rent. To what extent is the governor engaged in this issue? So we've had some conversations with the governor's folks. Uh, he's made some statements that we thought were uh, very helpful, like get me a package of, uh, of uh, rent, rent stabilization bills and I'll pass it. Right. Uh, we, um, we met with the governor's folks. We're like, well, what's a reasonable bill to you? Yeah. you know, what are you looking for? And there hasn't been total clarity on that yet. Um, and still most of the work that the, um, that the governor is doing is focused on production. Um, and incentivizing local governments to uh, to do more on housing. Um, yeah, we would like to see a whole lot more from him on on tenant protections and renter stability. Um, without his, I guess, more full-throated influence mm-hmm. in in the capital, can you get um, some of these bills passed? So we are going to need uh, leadership. On behalf of the governor, leadership on behalf of uh, the pro tem and the speaker to shepherd these bills through. There's no way, I don't think, um, that we get anything meaningful done without leadership being at the table and 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 working hard to see these pass. And, and I you, don't know if we I don't know if we have that. You know, some people will say, "Well, Prop Ten got buried. It's you can't get it through the Capitol." It's losing. It's won in some places, in some localities, but in many notable localities, it's losing. Do people just not like the idea of rent control? Yeah, our polling would say different. That's one of the really surprising things about Prop 10. Even before and right after, you know, we're doing statewide polling, people still want tenant protections. They still want rent stabilization. And that is the great dilemma, right? We All of this polling says that people want this, and yet it's been a struggle, right? A lot of people talk about Prop 10, right? And it, it failed, so we should all just quit, right? Um, something else that failed uh, is is um, uh, abolishing the death penalty. And our leadership here, Gavin Newsom, uh, you know, was willing to defy the will of the voters uh, on, on the death penalty. And if you look at the picture you know, from a press conference where he's announcing this, some of the same legislators are standing behind him. They're now saying, oh, Prop 10 was the will of the voters. You know, we can't do anything about about tenant protections. It's nonsense. So, like, I want to hear the real reasons that legislators don't want to support this. And if it is, you know, if there are market reasons, like, let's negotiate, let's find some solutions uh, to the problems that, that you're seeing in these bills, and, and let's move forward, because tenants can't wait. They cannot wait. Like, are we going to just keep, uh, you know, the rents are going to keep going up. People are going to continue to be displaced. They're going to leave our cities. Uh, they're going to leave our state. Um, we have to do something. I, I want to ask about Oregon. How do you think they were able to get that through the Oregon legislature when it was yeah. so problematic, when it's been so problematic here in California? 
So uh, I've had an opportunity to talk with the folks who moved the Oregon legislation, and it was really exciting to do that. Um, And they talked about coalition building uh, with labor, faith, and community groups, you know, um, and they said another piece that was really important was hearing from rural communities uh, about um, about their struggles with affordability and housing. You know, because a lot of folks in Oregon saw this is a Portland issue. You know, this is a city issue, but it's not. Just like it isn't in Sacramento, right? Or in California, uh, all across the state. If you're in the Central Valley, if you're in the north part of the state, if you're in uh, the Coachella Valley, Inland Empire, the rent is climbing everywhere. So um, I think. As we build a real statewide uh, movement for rent stabilization, I think we'll begin to have a lot more, make a lot more progress. Um, when legislators are hearing from their constituents in the Central Valley that they can't afford rent anymore, you know, um, and that that's going to come from organizing. Well, what about the fact that the Oregon equivalent of the Apartment Association here, the Oregon Association of Landlords, mm-hmm. didn't oppose that bill, right? They, they they were not explicitly opposed to it. Um, what do you make of that? Well, their cap there is CPI plus seven. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's about 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Wouldn't it be great if the apartment association and the realtors would negotiate to an actual number and maybe we could have a discussion about that number uh, if, if they thought uh, that, was, that was the right one? Um, I don't know why they would be so opposed in Oregon and not, or not as opposed in Oregon as they are in California. I mean, I would imagine there's a whole lot more money to make in real estate in California than there is in Oregon. Well, one thing that comes to mind is that Oregon didn't have a Prop 10. So the, mm-hmm. the Oregon Landlord Association yeah. may have less leverage, right, because they can't say, well, voters overwhelmingly right. rejected this idea. Yeah, they refused to negotiate before there was a Prop 10. They, when have they come to the table and offered anything on tenant protections? That's never happened. So with or without, I mean, Prop 10 is the excuse du jour, uh, but but they've never been coming sure, to the table. Sure, but we talked at the beginning of this conversation about how um, you said that they were talking or at least making moves publicly. I remember I was at the hearing last year, you remember, when they said, yeah, we took a talk about the date, Costa Hawkins and things right. like that. They they said kind words about the Turner Center proposal on, mm-hmm. on rank gouging, which is now a model for what she was proposing now. And so, uh, again, publicly, there were, there were certainly um, right. uh, statements to the effect that they were willing to. Definitely. And that was one good thing about Prop 10 uh, was that a lot of folks made public statements. Many, <laughs> many legislators made public statements about uh, what they were going to do for tenants uh, mm-hmm. after the defeat of Prop 10. Mm-hmm. You know, um, let's see it. All right, uh, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. We're here with Assemblyman Rob Bonta, Democrat from Alameda, who's made time uh, from his hotel room in Hawaii (laughs) to uh, visit our podcast. Thanks for coming on, Rob. Pleasure's mine. Thanks for having me. Um, Let's let's start here. Uh, You have put forward... Um, a bill dealing with just cause eviction this year. You had a similar bill last year that failed to get out of the state assembly. Um, why is it so difficult to get pro-tenant legislation through the Capitol? I think the voice of our tenants and renters across the state of California, all 17 million of them, 17 million Californians rent the place they call home, is, is growing and getting stronger. And, and it's been a continuum where it's definitely been not as strong in the past. And, and as the crisis has uh, increased and the state of emergency has been one that we just can't turn away from and must address, uh, the voice has gotten stronger. So I think, I think the voice of tenants and renters is as strong this year as it's ever been in the past. But it's been, uh, for a long time, a, a one-way conversation at the Capitol where... The conversation has mostly been driven by um, property owners and property rights advocates, um, realtors, apartment association, others, without the appropriate counterbalance. Well, so so let, let's push that a little bit. I mean, you said it's never been stronger for t- tenant organizations. I'm going to delineate, give some bullet points here. Um, we had a uh, uh, bill to repeal Costa Hawkins last January in the legislature. 
didn't advance out of the first committee. You referenced your bill, uh, which died on the assembly floor pretty strongly. The uh, ballot measure, Proposition 10, uh, 6 and 10 Californians uh, said no to that. That would also would have repealed Costa Hawkins. So, I, I mean, what, what data point do you have for us to say that it's actually stronger for tenants than it has been in the past? More legislators uh, standing up and fighting for the, those 17 million renters in California and believing that there needs to be a solution. The, the failure of, of Proposition 10 and the Costa-Hawkins repeal bill last year leaves a huge void of non-solution that someone needs to step into uh, to provide a solution. The, the, the fact that those that that bill and that proposition failed uh, doesn't mean that we're prepared to move forward. All it means is that no solution has been rendered. Maybe that wasn't the right solution for the, for the voters of California at that time or for the legislature, but it means that something needs to happen, and it has increased the urgency for action, thus these four bills. So how did the failure of Prop 10 shape the kind of proposals that you wanted to do this year? What did, was there some lines that you decided you weren't going to try to cross, or, or how did that result, do you think, change the landscape and playing field and lead to you folks introducing the kind of bills that you have? Well, we, we tried in, in the only two avenues possible to repeal Costa-Hawkins last year, through the legisl- legislature and through um, a direct vote of the people through a proposition, and neither one was successful. I think that was a, a, a goal uh, to repeal Costa Hawkins from tenant advocates and, and allies. And we put in really strong efforts in, in, through both avenues, and we weren't successful. So we have to be able to adjust t- to that and think of other ways to protect the tenants that are still suffering and in need of help from, from our leaders. So you know, while the goal might still be to repeal Costa Hawkins, it, it, it doesn't seem like it's an appropriate strategy to do that in one step, in one move. Obviously, part of your job is negotiating uh, with uh, the Apartment Association, the Association of Landlords, and others who are kind of on the the other side of this equation. Um, Does Michael Weinstein, the head of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation who put Prop 10 on the ballot, Mm -hmm. does he help or hurt you in your job? I think he helps. I think he has a very strong voice, um, a voice driven by justice and fairness and um, appropriate treatment, dignified treatment of tenants. I think he stands up for the right things and the right values. He also has resources available to push issues um, and communicate to the entire state of California through propositions and um, uh, to create change that we need. Um, I get along with him well. I respect him. I think he's a strong advocate on these issues in a place where there's been a vacuum uh, in terms of um, leaders to join the coalition. And, you know, we've, we've had some longtime leaders, California Tenants Together, ACE, um, Pico California, Western Center on Law and Poverty, others that have fought this fight um, boldly and courageously for a long time. But, you know, winning legislation that's difficult, that takes on, quote-unquote, third rails, needs friends, needs a coalition, needs more people on board to help in the fight. And to me, Michael Weinstein is a very important part of that coalition. We don't always agree on everything. That's what makes it hard. Um, you know, some of the legislators uh, fighting this fight don't always agree with Mr. Weinstein and vice versa. And that's okay. We can have reasonable debate about what the approach, right approach is at the right time. So uh, speaking of friends, um, is the governor your friend on this? And maybe a little bit less glibly, um, if the answer is yes, uh, what specifically has he done uh, so far uh, to help with your bill and, and, and others that are in this package? Yeah, he's a friend, and you may have all noticed, um, I certainly noticed, that in his state of the state, he asked the legislature to give him a, uh appropriate bill to protect tenants, and, he, and he'd uh, sign it. You know, there's, there's some... Um, room for reasonable minds to differ on terms of what that appropriate set of bills is, but we think we have an appropriate set of bills that we're going to try to get to him. And he's invited it. He's flagged it. Um, you know, tenant protections as an issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, post Prop 10, he made some comments about needing to address this issue that hasn't gone away, given the failure of Prop 10. 
and I think that's the right place to be. He stand, you know, his job is to stand up for all Californians, and he is. And that includes our renters and our tenants, all 17 million of them. Well, what, 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 what specifically, he yeah, has he, is well, he doing? Well, he, yeah. he, he called, he specifically asked for and called for a meeting in his office with him present, leading the meeting with the different authors of the tenant bills to check in and program and talk about the path forward and the challenges ahead and how we can work together and what makes sense and you know, talk through the different policy components how some of them work together or don't work together, how some of them stand on their own, uh, what kind of relief they would deliver to our, to our tenants. And so, you know, that's a proactive step that I really uh, respect and, and appreciate. He, he didn't have to do that. He could have just waited and said, I'm going to, you know, passively wait in, in the governor's office and if something gets to me, I'll, I'll consider it. If not, um, so be it. But he didn't do that. Uh, early on, before any of these bills had a hearing, he, he wanted to know, uh, what was moving, what the politics look like, what the challenges are. Um, uh, I believe he's had meetings with the leadership on both sides, the, the Senate Pro Tem Atkins and Speaker Rendon, to talk about um, this issue of, of, of tenant protections and, and tenant rights. So he's, he's engaged, uh, you know, at, a, at, at a, a nuanced, detailed level, not at a high-distance level. And uh, having the governor of California in, in, in the first 100 days be engaged in tenant protections means a lot to me. So what was it like in that room? What yeah. was the conversation like? How did it, what was the tenor? Was it, did it feel good? Like, to, to tell us about that, that, uh, that meeting. This is like within the last couple of months, right? How long was the meeting? Yeah. Went for a while. Uh, there were parts where I was able to be present for and parts where I wasn't because I was also presenting at committee at the same time. And you guys know that drill. Yeah. Um, it was over an hour, I believe. Um, he had some of his highest level staff, his chief of staff. Um, his uh, you know legislative director um, and and others who specialize in you know housing. He had he was very engaged. He ran the meeting. He personally he did yeah yep he was ahead of the table, totally engaged. Welcomed us there, prepared early. Um, you know um, friendly. Uh, you know there was a there was a, a a good informality about it. You know it wasn't like overly formal. Um, you know there were, you know there was humor and uh, you know relaxed Ooh. conversation. What was the humor? Yeah, what, what was the best joke? That's what we want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it was a, a specific joke, but it was it was, um, you know there were there there were times when he was, um, you know re, re, you know in a, in a lighthearted way, in, in, in referencing some of the other experiences that he's had that were. You know, it, it, one of them was related to, if, if I recall correctly, um, a really interesting conversation that he had had with someone, with with the, uh, if you guys follow this podcast, the Ear Hustle podcast, the uh, one of the, the individual in San Quentin who, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, who, yeah. Who, who, yeah, who does that podcast. He spoke to him and he just shared an anecdote because he had an opportunity to meet him. Um, and you know, it, 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 so you know, he was he was talking about it and he was just sharing a, an observation he had. So our um, podcast didn't come up at all. In the... I was doing my best to insert it and, and pivot appropriately to your podcast, uh, but but it just didn't come up. Ah, next time. <laughs> yep. I will make sure I do that next time, though. Uh, I'll, I'll lead with that at the next meeting I have with the governor. So, uh, handicap this for us. If you had ten thousand dollars, how much of it would you bet that uh, your these 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 bills advance out of the committee next week? Sorry, I lost you on the last part. If I had ten thousand dollars, how much of it <laughs> you would, you, there. would you bet uh, <laughs> that these bills? I got stuck on having ten thousand dollars. That was, that yeah, was exciting. Exactly. If you had ten thousand dollars, how much of it would you bet that these bills are going to advance out of committee next week? As one of the leaders, I put it all. Yeah, and, all, and, are, all and, go for broke, man, and bet it all. Uh, <laughs> but with you know, with the over under from the experts, do the same and say that you know it's, it's a guaranteed win. No. You know, it's going to be tough. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful of my just cause bill getting out of Judiciary Committee. Um, I'm very hopeful and optimistic to get the support of an uh, amazing Judiciary Chair um, in Mark Stone. Um, the Housing Committee is led by an incredible leader on housing, David Chu. Um, but I, I think that there's different policy perspectives on, uh, among the members of that Housing Committee, um, and they might not all think that 
this package of bills that they're going to see is, is appropriate. So let's let's zoom out a little bit. Um, do you think these bills have a chance uh, of ultimately passing if they are not attached to, say, a package of other legislation that, that some of the uh, other folks may find more friendly or like better, say, bills that would increase spending on low-income housing or, more precisely, uh, sort of streamline building or, or, or make it easier to develop new property? We need to do both. We need to, to build more units at all uh, affordability levels, certainly including a, a very strong amount of, a strong number of, a uh, large number of affordable housing units, and we need to protect tenants today. Um, and, and together they're part of a sort of a, a dual protection approach to address our, our housing crisis. So I, I think the chances of the, the tenant protection bills moving forward goes way up when they're seen as part of a larger package of um, solutions that is more comprehensive and more broad that includes uh, increased supply. We don't want to take up any more of your time. We'll let you return, um, hopefully, to the beach. Um, I'm going to the state capitol to meet with legislators. Oh. Um, so maybe not as exciting, but absolutely. It, their state capital is not on the beach. That's what I would be. Why <laughs> I'd have my beach. That'd capital. be my first Proxman question. Is, I think yeah. <laughs> the beach, as is most everything in, in the state of Hawaii. Uh, thank you very much, Assemblyman Bata. Thank you. Thanks, Liam. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you guys having me.